Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. You want to open your Bibles to uh, Acts chapter 4, verse 32 through 37. Uh, Hunter will be leading us this morning as we study God's Word uh, in this section of the early church. Beginning with verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Let us praise the name of God's word. Let's go to God one more time in prayer and ask for his help as we look to his word this morning. Father, it is your word and you you tell us that your word is fixed in the heavens that it is forever the same. Lord, you tell us that your church and your people are sanctified by your word and by your truth, and your word is truth. And Lord, we know that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. And so, Lord, we ask now that you would give us humble and receptive hearts. God, we ask that you would open up our eyes to behold wondrous things from your law. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And so I wonder if you've ever considered the importance of evidence. Evidence. When someone is charged with a crime, the prosecution and the defense typically call in witnesses to testify about the guilt or innocence of the person who has been accused. Evidence is extremely important. They bring in witnesses to take the stand and take an oath to tell the truth, all to to get to the conclusion and to the bottom of the claims that have been stated, either to, uh, to seek innocence or to seek justice and them being guilty. And one of the most important players in all testimony isn't isn't the personal testimonies or witnesses, but it's the forensic evidence, the forensic evidence. And when we think about forensic evidence, Uh, That's evidence that is obtained through the use of the scientific method. Uh, Investigators may use ballistics or or blood tests or DNA testing as forensic evidence, all to get to the bottom of the claims. You think of any courtroom drama or any of the 82 series that have to deal with uh, law and order that have come on uh, 
the, the television over, over the years and how they've employed forensic evidence and how that technology has skyrocketed in the past 10 years and what we're able to do that we were not able to do. The little baggie containing samples of hair or skin found underneath a victim's fingernails, uh, long deleted files that were discovered from the suspect's computer, all these are pieces of evidence to get to the bottom of the claim. The importance of evidence cannot be overstated in determining whether or not someone is guilty or innocent. We depend on it. It tells the truth if we have enough evidence. And when we move into the realm of Christianity, we know the issue of evidence comes up very often. It comes up when we speak of origins. How did we get here? What happened in the beginning? The claim of the Christian is that God created the heavens and the earth and everything that was in them. And so we, we go back and forth with evolutionists on this issue of evidence. Well, what does the evidence point towards? We look at the fine-tuning of the universe. We look at the fossil record. Uh, we look at the historic uh, claims of the Bible as to how the world was created. And if we move from the issue of creation, evidence is extremely important in recognizing who is and who is not a Christian. Jesus says something of this in John chapter 13. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. He says, he makes an evidence claim here in verse 35. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. And so Jesus says that the way in which the world is going to figure out, to determine, to come to the conclusion that we are his is based on the evidence found in a relational component. And that relational component being love. He doesn't say they're they're going to know that you're mine by how many you have in attendance on Sunday. He doesn't say that the world is going to know that you are my disciples by how much you give, although that's extremely important. But the Bible says, Jesus says that it's our love for one another, not even the love for lost people, as important as that is, but the relationships that are defined within God's people the way that you are to love one another. He's speaking to the disciples. And this morning, we're going to examine the early church. We looked last week at a prayer of the early church. We saw their humility. We saw their dependence. We saw the fact that they cared more about the mission of God than their personal comfort. That They were in persecution and they did not pray, Lord, free us from this hard circumstance. They said, Lord, give us boldness to be faithful to carry out your mission. We saw their humility. We saw their dependence on the Lord. And and this morning, we're going to look at the relationships within the church and how important. What is it that defined this early group of believers that made them so impactful? I don't know if you've ever really thought about it, but you and I stand here today If you are a Christian, a part of a local church, we stand here today as a testimony to what they did. This is the very beginnings of the church. God had given them a commission and God blessed their efforts. I I emphasized last week that these are not super Christians, that they are fallen. All you have to do is just go one chapter over to Acts chapter five. 
and you see that they have some issues within the church, that they are an imperfect people. But I think we can gaze into the, to the lives of the early church and draw principles and learn you, how can we improve in our relationships within the body? We desire to be used of the Lord. Just as God used this church, he can and is using us to further his kingdom. And so I want us to look at the relationships within the early church this morning. So let's look at the text. Look at verse 32. So first we see that this people was unified. These people were unified and selfless. Unified and selfless. You see that in the text? Look at verse 32. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. One heart and soul. And before we even get there, I think it's important to draw this this principle out of the text here. It says, now the full number of those who believed. And then he goes on to explain what they're doing, what their actions are. Those who had believed, they, they were something. That there is a pattern of life in the early church that distinguishes them from everyone else, from the world that is around them. Leading us to believe Luke here as he's writing that there is a distinction. There is a, there is a manner of life that should be characteristic of the church that sets itself apart from the world that is around them. Those who are, those who believed were. In Acts chapter 2, verse 41, Luke describes those who were saved as those who received God's word. So when we see those who are believed, that's a a phrase used to those who were saved, to those who had been added to the church. In Acts chapter 2, Peter preaches this sermon at Pentecost and Thousands of people are saved. They become Christians. Now, and if you look at the landscape of the Bible, it gives us different phrases for this same concept. Is that you must be, Jesus says you must be born again. Right? You must be saved. You, you must be converted. You must be regenerated. You must receive eternal life. We use different phrases which all mean the same major work of God in a lost person's heart that brings him from an unbeliever to a Christian. And that's what Luke is describing here. He's describing believers, not what they believe, although that is extremely important, but the way that they conducted themselves in everyday life. He's describing the church as they should be, different, unique, set apart, imperfect, but separate and different from the world around them. And I want us to be reminded this morning that the church consists of believers. That the membership in the local body consists of repenting repenters. Imperfect people who are seeking with all that is in them to obey the Lord and to live for him. The church is not a social meeting. We're simply a get together of like-minded people to some degree, but it's a community of those who have believed And who are fleshing out that belief in their day-to-day life. Because we're going to beg the question as we walk through the text, what good is a profession that you believe in the Lord Jesus? 
that you affirm these doctrinal truths if your life has never been transformed, if there is no evidence to back up that claim. And we see the early church as imperfect as they were, they had a life within the body that was distinct, that could give evidence and credibility to the claim that they made that they were followers of Jesus. The early church was, these believers were. Now look at that phrase, one heart and one soul. They were unified. And the reality is, all who are true Christians have been unified. As Jonathan read our text this morning in the book of Ephesians, God has made us one in the gospel. That there is a a spiritual component that is unseen by the physical eye that true believers are united in Christ together. That's why Paul says in the book of Ephesians, he doesn't say, hey, create unity. He says, maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. God has made us one in the gospel. He has broke down those walls of hostility, not only against himself, but against one another. And so we are one in the gospel, Christians are. But that's not often what we see, is it? that we live in a sinful world, that we have sinful hearts, even though we're redeemed, that, that sin still remains within us and we, we desire to have our way. And so we see fractions and divisions within the people of God. But we're, the reality is, the spiritual reality is, is that we are one. He doesn't say create it, but to maintain unity. And listen to me, it is the desire of Jesus that his church be unified. He expresses this in his ministry. And John, won't you flip to John 17 real quick? I I want you to flip to read this one. John chapter 17, the gospel of John. I want us to see this prayer of Jesus, this high priestly prayer that he prays. And I'm not going to read the entire thing, but just a few verses just to get us to see that the heart of Christ as the head of the church is for his body to be unified, to be together so much so that he would intercede to the Father for this very purpose. John chapter 17, look at verse 10. Jesus says to to God the Father, all mine are yours and yours are mine and I'm glorified in them. Verse 11, and I'm no longer in the world, but they are in the world and I'm coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me that they may be one, even as we are one. Look at verse 20 in John chapter 17. Jesus says this, I do not ask for these only. Hey, you and I are included in this prayer. Jesus says, I do not ask for only these disciples, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That verse 21, that they may all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Do you see the conditional clause that Jesus places on the people of God being one and being unified? That they may believe that you have sent me. The unity of the church is extremely important, and it should be no surprise to us that Paul, in writing to the early church, emphasizes unity in his letters. Philippians chapter one, verse 27, Paul says, 
Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I might hear that you are, listen to me, standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Paul's prayer for them is that whether he is there or he is absent, he would hear of their faith and how they were, they're remaining unified, striving together side by side for the faith of the gospel. We all know the Corinth, the church at Corinth. The church at Corinth was kind of a mess, wasn't it? Right? The early church had its issues just like we do today. But at the church at Corinth, Paul, a major part of him writing 1 Corinthians is addressing this very issue. It's addressing divisions within God's people. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11, 18, he says, for in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And he even addresses the divisions in the first chapter of 1 Corinthians. And what was going on at the Corinthian church? The people of God can find anything to disagree on and be divided over. They were divided over good teaching in the church. Some said, I follow Paul and I follow Apollos. And Paul has to, you know, he has to put to death that entire mindset and call them to unity. That what is Paul and what is Apollos? For we watered, but it's the Lord who gave the growth. And Paul cares so much about the unity of the church that he takes a detour from talking about the divisions and he addresses, well, how is it that we can be unified? And did you know that 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient, love is kind. We hear that at weddings, but it's really an application to, the, to a local church that is divided. I mean, Paul's calling them to love and to be unified and the way in which we are unified, that we maintain the spirit of unity and the bond of peace is through what Paul outlines in 1 Corinthians 13, that type of love. So let's ask the question this morning, why would Jesus desire the unity of his church? Why would Paul exhort unity and condemn disunity? And I believe it's this, is that unity among God's people displays God's glory. Unity tells a story and gives a picture of the God that we claim to serve, a God who is distinct in his persons and in his function in our salvation but who is unified in it, his purpose and is unified in his godness. And so if we are to be the reflection of God to the world, there must be unity in the midst of diversity, unity in the midst of differences, that we give a picture to the lost world of who God is by our unity. I believe that unity among God's people displays the power of the gospel. God has created every tribe, tongue, and nation. He is saving every tribe, tongue, and nation. And, and oftentimes when God saves people, there are people from different tribes, tongues, nations in the same geographical region. Even within our church, there are so many differences. There are so many differences of background and preference and age and life experience. And so the, the power of the gospel is displayed when there is diversity amongst God people's people, but they can unify under the banner of Christ. That is, what, that is a draw to the unbelieving world when people who have nothing else in common 
and who would otherwise never be together, draw together, love one another, live life together, all under the banner of Christ. It says something about the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel. Unity displays the power of the gospel. And what kind of testimony does disunity give? What does it say about a people who have supposedly received grace, received love, received mercy, who cannot coexist together in a service, who cannot coexist together in life? It, it, it gives a weak validation and it undermines the claims that come out of our mouth if we cannot show these same things that we have been shown in the gospel, how we exist together shows something of our King. They will recognize you by the way you love one another. We display that Christ is the greatest thing that we have in common and all other secondary preferences do not matter or don't matter as much as the primary thing. Jesus said, I mean, Paul says in the book of Ephesians, as Jonathan read, that he's making, he has reconciled us into one body. Paul says in Galatians chapter three, there is neither Jew nor Greek, neither slave nor free. There there is neither male nor female for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now I can get a bunch of people together who like Mississippi State football and we would we would bear arms with one another because being a Mississippi State football fan is just, it's a difficult thing. You know, you get your hopes up at the beginning of the season and it all crashes and burns by midseason. That's just, that's just a, a consistent pattern for the really Mississippi sports in general, Ole Miss or Mississippi State. We're all sorry. But there isn't much dis- power displayed in that. Right, we, can have, we can find some random commonality that would get us together, but that, that doesn't fully display the power of the gospel. It's when there is unity in the midst of our differences, when we come from different backgrounds, that we are different races, that we have different opinions, that we are different ages, when we can gather together, that that gives glory and honor to Christ. And listen, I I know sometimes, well, I I need to, I need to, I need to, I'm not going to say that. I'm going to move on. Um, I'll say, I think, I think we limit the unifying power of the gospel when we try to appeal to one demographic or one race or one age. Paul didn't say the Jewish service starts at nine, the Greek service starts at 10, did he? He he said, you need to to gather together. You need to work this out together. You are one in Christ. And I think you limit the the display of the glory of God, the power of the gospel when when we segment everybody all the time. Because this church had plenty of things to disagree over. Sometimes we look at the early church and just think, well, maybe they just got along better than we can get along today. And that's just not true. The Jew and the Greek, I mean, they had issues going on in, you know, throughout the book of Acts. Jerusalem council, Peter drifts, right? And he's showing preference to, to the Jews and, and not to the Gentile proselytes. And so uh, this church had every opportunity that you and have, I have today to disagree and to be disunified but they banded together under, um, under the name of Christ. And they had gone under persecution and persecution has a way of just drawing people together, drawing believers together. They needed one another. 
Unity is a tool. And so what is the remedy? Let's just kind of close this section out just asking the question, what is the remedy for disunity? What is the, you know, what do we need to pursue in order to be unified? Because at the end of the day, I mean, Paul says uh, in the book of Corinthians, it was necessary for some divisions to become among you so that I might see who is truly saved and truly lost. So there, there are some things that are worth dividing over. We can say that for sure. But there are some things that are not. So what is the remedy for disunity? If this church is one heart and soul in the midst of the, all of their diversity, how does that come about? I've already spoken about love, love, truly. Love covers a multitude of sins in the lives of your fellow church members and the life of the church. Forbearance, patience, learning to forgive as Christ has forgiven us, showing mercy, forbearing with one another and one another's weaknesses, dying to selfish preferences, Having deep relationships within the body helps with our unity, loving one another. Because at the end of the day, you and I all have different preferences. We're just all different, and that's okay. That's not a bad thing. I believe that God's glory is displayed in the midst of our diversity when we can unify together. But we all have preferences. There's not one age that has more preferences than the other. We all bring our presuppositions and our preferences into our life and into our church life. But we've got to learn what is primary and what is secondary. And so I would would ask you this morning to search your heart and just ask the question that I've asked all week, what are the preferences in my life that I might be tempted to bring disunity over? What are some secondary things that I probably need to die to for the sake of the unity of God's people? Now, I'm not going to list those out, but you know those in your heart. Things that might be going on in the life of the church. It might be music. It might be, uh, you know, it might be the color of the carpet. It might be renovations. Just, just seek and ask the Lord to show you those things in your life that we all must die to for the sake of unity, for the greater good of the body of Christ. It cannot be about us. The church is, is just not about us. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's not about us. And have you ever considered that God allows you to be a part of a church body so that your life can be less about you and more about the good of others and more about the glory of Christ? May we be known as a body who makes the main thing the main thing, and that is Christ. And that is one of the greatest ways I've seen to just disassemble disunity in the body is just to exalt the head of the church, which is Christ. When Christ is exalted, when he is given glory, when he is pointed to, when he is sung about, when he is raised up in his proper place, some, it, it is a work of God that just allows us to put to death by the Spirit those selfish preferences that we might cling to or put at the forefront that would cause disunity within God's people. His agenda, his kingdom, his glory. It's about Christ. And this church was one heart and one soul. They were also selfless. Look at verse 32 again in Acts chapter four. Verse 32, the second part of that. It says that, and no one within the church said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own. It says that they had everything in common. Now that, now surface level, they didn't have everything in common. 
right? These are Jews and Greeks. We see in, in Acts chapter 6 that there are uh, Greek-speaking Jews and there are Hebrew-speaking Jews within the same congregation because the, the Hellenistic Jews, their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of the food. And so we know that they did not have everything in common. We've kind of already established that. But what does it mean when he says that? And what does it mean that, that nobody said that anything that belonged to them was his own? Well, this love for one another and love the Lord had led to a, just a selflessness in the life of God's people. The way that they thought about their money and their possessions drastically changed when they were saved. And I pray that you have that same testimony too. Is that this is what the grace of God does in the heart of the believer. Before Christ, it is mine. For my own purposes, money, possessions. And after our conversion, since we have received everything in Christ, it becomes his. Well, it was his the whole time. We just finally came to that recognition. It was never ours. Nothing is our own. And in the gospel, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, he says, you were purchased with a price. You would have honored the Lord in your body because you have been purchased, that you are not your own. We are not our own. Christ has purchased us with his shed blood. And so if we are not our own, how much less is our own, the material possessions that God has given us and put, placed in our care? If he did not spare his own son at the cross for me and I am a recipient of that great gift, how is it that I can in return clench my belongings for myself? Those two things just do not line up. And so what God does in the gospel is that he frees us from the love of things. He just changes the heart from me, mine to yours what, what you have entrusted to me is no longer lived out for my selfish pleasure, but it's lived out for your kingdom, your glory, your agenda. They began to see their things as the Lord's. Nothing changed. They just came to that recognition of Psalm 24, that the earth is the Lord's in the fullness thereof. Their mindset went from owner to steward and manager. So the things of this world were loosened in their hands. Now, this is not an argument for socialism here. Uh, the redistribution of wealth. That this, is, this is a voluntary and willing thing. The people of God, are, their hearts have been just so transformed. They're loving their brothers and sisters of Christ. And so everything that they have, they say, this is not mine. It's not my own. They had everything in common. And this is what happens when hearts are changed and filled with gratitude in the gospel. There's an early letter that was written in really about the fourth century from an emperor named Julian. He talks about the early church, maybe not this, not this congregation, but the early church in general, general. And he writes this letter. He says, the Christian faith has been specially advanced through the loving service rendered to strangers and through their care for the burial of the dead. It is a scandal that there is not a single Jew who is a beggar and that the godless Galileans care not only for their own poor, but ours as well. While those who belong to us look in vain for the help that we should render them. 
And so they had this testimony in the early church that nothing that they had belonged to them, that it was all leveraged for the glory of God and for the good of one another and for the good of outsiders. We see their main priority being Christ. And I want us to think through that. Is that your attitude this morning? As we think about thanksgiving, that, that the heart of gratitude and, and giving thanks to God is not just in word, but it's in deed. And the heart that is truly grateful and thankful fleshes itself out in generosity in the lives of others. Firstly, in the life of the church. But secondly, in the lives of outsiders and unbelievers. Does, does this characteristic define you? Could it be said of you that you are a generous person or you are a greedy person? I remember Frank Lucido when he got that new truck, that shiny new, he called it a sweep. I mean, I guess that's some slang nickname for truck. And he said, come look at my sweep. So he had this, he had his new truck outside. So I went outside and he was looking at this thing and he said, well, that's just, the, that's the Lord's truck. You need it. You come take it. Here are the keys. You can drive it. And so he just modeled very well. I just remember that as I was thinking through this passage, Frank popped up in my mind about the Lord's truck that was used for camp and, you know, towing trailers and giving people rides. I mean, he just modeled that very well. So do you do that? Can you say that of yourselves? Come stay at our house, take our cars, raid our pantry. That it's a beautiful thing in the life of the church when there is just an openness and a, and a looseness in the hand of God's people when it comes to material possessions. And you want to talk about a witness in 2018, individualistic, materialistic America. Just let loose of our material things. That what a testimony it would be in the generosity of God's people to the culture around us that just can't get enough. Man, Black Friday started last year after Christmas. We're extending those sales more and more every year. I'm not hating on you if you're going Black Friday shopping. Go find a deal. But you see that they just, the, the culture just caters to the materialistic nature of, of, of our culture. And so uh, we need to stand out in that way. But we also see, look at verse 33. They were full of boldness and grace. They were full of boldness and grace. Verse 33 says, and with great power... The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And it says, and great grace was upon them all. So it says great power. Jesus says at the end of the gospel of Luke, when he is talking to his disciples, he says, you will be witnesses. Or you will take my name as after he validates his resurrection. Touch my hands, touch my feet, touch my side. It is I. He wants to reassure them of his resurrection. And then he says, you will be my witnesses. But he, 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 you know, he, holds, he puts a halt to it. He says, but you, you need to wait. Go in Jerusalem, pray, wait until you are, he says, clothed with power from on high. This is that power. It's the power of God's spirit. It's not anything that is within the apostles. I think sometimes we look at the apostles, you know, there's a charge to the church to share the gospel, to testify to the resurrection of Jesus. And we look at passages like these and we just say, well, that, I mean, they were the apostles, you know what I mean? They, they had their stuff together. I mean, they're healing people. But Acts chapter four, earlier in Acts chapter four, look at verse 13. Now, when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated, common men, they were astonished. 
we qualify for that. You know what I mean? There's nobody in the kingdom of God that can't be used to testify to the resurrection of Christ because of, we say we might not have the credentials. Uneducated common men who were given and empowered for the mission of Christ. And you think about it, if, you, if you've read, you know, we've kind of gone through this scenario in the book of Acts where we are in the book. And they had told the disciples specifically not to do that. Like this is the exact opposite of what they said to not do. They said, do not testify about the resurrection of Christ. You can't speak in his name anymore. And they said, well, you know, if it's right in the eyes of God to, to disobey him, you'll have to decide that. But we cannot help but testify to what we have seen and what we have heard. And so these are regular, ordinary men empowered by the Spirit, obeying Jesus. They were fresh off his resurrection and under persecution. And they said, I mean, that's what they said to the authorities. They said, listen, we've seen this. Like, this, like our friend was dead and then he was alive. And everything that he claimed when he was teaching us was validated at his resurrection. If he is raised from the dead, it changes everything. That's what Paul says. Paul says, if Jesus has not been raised, then your faith is really in vain. Your preaching is in vain. You're lying about God saying that he raised Jesus from the dead when in fact he didn't, but he did. And these men are a testimony to that. Listen, do you not think that the disciples would have known if he raised from the dead or not? They would have for sure known. It's either truth or it's a lie. And their lives testified to the fact that they believed unto death that Jesus had raised from the dead. Their lives testified to that. They would not die for something that they for sure knew was not true. But they had seen Jesus. They had seen his resurrection and were emboldened to take his Message And you and I, although have not visibly seen the resurrected Christ by the eye of faith, have been confirmed. We see the evidence in the word, right? We believe the, the testimony of the resurrection of Christ throughout history. We have an internal witness that Jesus has risen from the dead. The work he has done in our heart that we were once dead and now we are alive and so we have just as much confirmation as these early disciples did to go and to share the message. They were full of boldness and grace. And we talked last week, they prayed for boldness, didn't they? They didn't pray, Lord, get us out of here. They said, Lord, give us boldness. And he answered that according to his will. Boldness was not in them because they were super apostles. They were ordinary, uneducated, common men who were dependent on the Lord and he answered their prayer. I want us to see what, as well that what does it mean that grace was on them? You know, I think, it, I think it's telling to look at the early church and they're under persecution, threat of arrestment, punishment, and death. And it says that God's grace was on them, but, but he didn't free them from that. I think sometimes when we think about God's grace being on a congregation, it's to lead us to, to pathways that are easier and more comfortable. But here we see in the early church that God's grace was manifested in this congregation and he did not free them from the persecution that they were under. They received a greater gift than freedom from persecution, which is the refining process in the midst of it to make them more like Christ. They were greater recipients of God's grace in the midst of all this, a greater manifestation of God's presence as they obey, that's what Jesus says. Listen, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. That's what Jesus says. 
And those who do obey me, he says, me and my father, my father and I will come and manifest ourselves to them. And these disciples were getting more and more of the grace of God because they were humbling themselves under persecution, being dependent on the Lord and obeying him. And so let me ask this question, because I think it's pertinent to us today. Would you rather not have the blessing of God, the grace of God, and be safe, business as usual, in comfort and ease, or the blessing and grace of God, his, his favoring hand upon us in the midst of opposition and persecution? This makes me think of Moses in the book of Exodus. God tells Moses, get up and you're about to head out. But God says, I'm not gonna go with you. And Moses in Exodus 33, 15 and 16, he says to him, listen, if your presence will not go with me, don't bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? Moses was saying, we don't want the promised land without you. You are what makes the promised land the promised land, that we are with you. Moses says, we don't want to go. We'll stay here with you, the early church, willfully endured persecution because they had the greater gift of God's presence with them. They were not willing to compromise on the truth so that their lives might be a little easier so that they might be able to to attract better crowds. They willfully endured the scorn and reproach of Christ because they had the grace of God, the presence of God among them and they were unwilling to compromise for that. We want you. They, they got more of God. Even though their life was hard, there was physical suffering, they got what the true believer truly desires, and that is more of God. More. We want you. And the American church today can take a, a cue from the early church, a page out of its book, that it is better to obey and have the favor of God the presence of God among his people than to compromise the truth. And lastly, we see that they are sacrificially loving one another. Look at verse 34. The text says that there wasn't a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses, they were selling land and selling homes, bringing the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. It says it was distributed to each as any had need. Again, willfully, it's not socialism. Thus Joseph, who in Barnabas, right, gets introduced here. He said he sold a field, belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. And so the early church is believing the promises of Jesus that if you seek first the kingdom of God, that all other things, your basic needs will be provided. That's what Jesus, that's a promise from the son of God. If you seek first the kingdom, all these other things will be added unto you. Jesus in Matthew chapter six says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. It is very clear where the early church's heart was. It's gripped by Christ. Because the material things that they owned, they willfully gave up for the good of the body 
and for the glory of God. Their treasure was Christ. Meeting the needs of others was more important than their portfolio or their retirement plan. They believed that the return on this investment would far outweigh any other investment. Barnabas had a field, I assume, in an agricultural society that that was a big deal for him to sell a field, right, for the sake of God's people and meeting their needs. But he believed the Lord, believed Jesus' teaching, that the dividends and the return that he would get on this investment would far outweigh any monetary return that he would get this side of heaven. And so we see in this early church just gratitude because it leads to generosity. And church, I want to affirm you this morning. I want to affirm your gratitude and your generosity. We truly have a generous congregation that you generously give and serve. You give of your time. You give of your resources. You give of your attention, you give of your love. I see the desire for unity in the life of our church. There have been matters that have come up that have not divided us that probably would have divided other churches. And you've laid aside secondary preferences, preferences in music, adapting to change for the sake of unity within the body. And that is to be applauded. And I praise the Lord for that. I've seen you care and love on your neighborhood when tragedy strikes. I think about the Lloyd family. I think about uh, our neighbors around us that you have just sacrificially met needs in their lives for no other purpose than the need was there. And so I want to affirm you. And this sermon is for us to just be encouraged that by the power of the Spirit, you and I can continue to live out the mission of God just like the early church did. That, that although God's graced us here in the life of this body, we should obey the Lord in Galatians chapter 9 and let us not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, we'll, we will reap if we do not give up. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, His death for you on the cross and His resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.